Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. And I have this picture where there's this embrace where the giraffe is like kissing the Kupanite, like nuzzling him. This giraffe had been sent to the wild and comes back in to check in on, on the Kupanai. That was Nat Geo photographer Amy Vitali, and it's time for Great Adventures. I'm such a fan of your work. Did you ever see this as your career, see this as your future when you were growing up? No. I mean, it's such a... Thank you, first of all. Um, it No, I never even knew. I didn't even have the ability to dream that this was a possibility. Certainly not for somebody like me, because I was painfully shy, introverted, gawky, just didn't have a voice. I didn't know what my path was. I was pretty lost. And, and then something really magical happened. The second I picked up this camera, right, it just took the attention away from myself and allowed me to focus on others. And I realized that being introverted was actually a really good thing because it allowed me to listen and allowed people to feel comfortable talking to me and hearing their stories. And so in the beginning, it was like this way for me to have my own, to feel empowered myself. But then as I slowly got into photography and storytelling, I realized, wait a minute, that's not the extraordinary thing. Really the extraordinary thing is that photography, storytelling, is an incredibly powerful tool and you can amplify all these amazing people and their stories and voices and and truly listen and learn and i mean i'm a curious person and it's been this wonderful journey <laughs> can you take me back to that time when you first picked up the camera what kind of camera was it how old were you they don't even exist anymore, but they were these little disposable ones where you just sent them in and the film would come back and the pictures would come back. And I think the very first one, I literally took pictures, a whole roll of clouds, pictures of clouds, because as I was photographing them, each cloud looks so unique and different. And I, and I remember being really kind of disappointed when I got the pictures back. I was like, hmm, like, ah, it wasn't exactly how I was seeing it. Um, that was the very first one. And then when I was in high school, I took a photography class. It was like my mind was blown. 
it was um, a Pentax K1000. That's when it all happened, when I was like 15, 14 or 15. Mm. And then it gave me the courage. I would like go out and walk along the streets and ask people to take their pictures. And, you know, everybody from people in business suits to people that were homeless. And I just would talk to everybody and just quietly ask to take their picture. And then they would start telling me their stories. And then like flash forward into university, I I took more photography classes. And I actually first set down this path where I wanted to be kind of a, a foreign correspondent and a journalist. And so I moved to the Czech Republic and began working for a newspaper there. And then this war in the Balkans started happening right in our backyard. So I actually became a war photographer for the first 10 years. When you first arrived there, what was your feeling? What was your, what were you expecting and and how were you surprised by the experience initially? Well, I have to say, I don't know how it happened. I began to hear these stories and I can't explain to you why, but something inside of me knew I had to go and tell this story that was unfolding in my backyard. And I was not experienced. I basically up until that point was just photographing portraits of mostly businessmen and politicians because I was working for a business newspaper in Prague. And overnight I went from this being this relatively amateur photographer to being a war photographer without really knowing what I was doing. But I have to say that I went with my heart and I tried to also not focus on the front line. I was much more interested in the stories of people, particularly women. Their stories weren't being told. And so I really decided that my purpose was going to be to tell the stories that weren't being told, focus on the humanity, the people caught in between this much greater geopolitical story. My colleagues are amazing, and they were telling the stories of the conflict and the violence and were putting themselves out there. And I did a bit of that and realized, like, nah, I want to give a broader vision because I felt like the pictures that only express the most violent aspects of war, only illuminate the things that divide us. Because we, in some ways, were telling half the story at best. And maybe at worst, it was even a lie because we left out the humanity very often. Mm. And I think it's so important to show the stories that allow us to relate to one another as simply human beings trying to survive, wanting the best for their children. And I found, you know, my voice was kind of through that, a different narrative. Um, and that all these narratives matter because they give us a broader vision of what the world really looks like. That, you know, in all my travels, yes, even in the most terrifying places, guess what? Most people want the same things as you and I. And, and that it's important to show, to show that. We have to create connections and and talk about the things that unify us as human beings, that it's important to talk about the challenges and the things that divide us, but it can't be all. That cannot be the only thing we talk about. You know, first thoughts are, that's very brave. What was your relationship? (laughs) (laughs) What was your relationship with, with fear during this time? I mean, was it easy jumping in? Did you have a lot of inner doubts? How'd you deal with fear during those moments? 
Yeah, it was actually at times terrifying, um, very lonely. And I mean, it took me a long time to even be able to talk about all of this without bursting out into tears. I mean, I wanted to understand. And so I became, you know, really like lived in places for years and years. I lived in Kashmir and told the story between Pakistan and India for four years. And believe me, I loved the people and they were my friends. And so, yes, I was often filled with fear, sometimes paralyzed by fear, actually. There were days when I just couldn't leave my apartment or hotel room. I mean, I was actually in Kashmir, like moving from place to place. I would sometimes stay on a houseboat, sometimes stay in a hotel. Like I'd have to move around for my own safety. And I would just some days not be able to get up and get out of bed. I was so depressed and so heartbroken thinking that this was all that, you know, you just get into a dark place, actually, when you just see the worst of humanity. But interestingly, it was always in those places where, like, my casual Mary friends would be like, why are you so sad? You know, we're in the middle of this conflict, and they're, like, making jokes about it. And, I mean, I have, like, a really amazing anecdote from that. Like, there was a moment I was trying to illustrate – Posters were being put up all over the city of Srinagar, which said, um, you know, any woman who doesn't wear a burqa will have acid thrown on her face, that all women and girls need to cover up their faces. And you have to imagine that Kashmir, all women didn't wear burqas. I mean, it was a much, it wasn't like Afghanistan. And it was as alien to them as it would be to, to me. And I thought, how do I illustrate this? And, and so I went to a tailor shop where a woman was buying a burqa and I asked to photograph her and she's sitting there with her child. And then she leans over and whispers to me in English and says, you know, I think the tailors drummed this up as a way of making more business. She was making a joke, like she was literally making a joke about this horrific, terrifying moment where I frankly was scared too. And I was like, oh my God, but that's how all my Kashmiris, that's the reality of humanity. And, and particularly, I have to say, Kashmiris have a wicked sense of humor and they would make jokes when I was literally weeping and make me laugh. And I was like, Oh my God, that is the reality of humanity. We are so resilient and that's what I want to show. And you had given yourself this task, which I think is amazing. And I think a, a very important part of telling both sides of the story. Sometimes you find that beautiful bright light in the midst of all this darkness. And that's what you were trying to do. Always. Can you take me to a time perhaps during those years where you captured this beautiful moment of, you know, humans being their best? Oh, God. I mean, it's always there. I actually think it's what we choose to see. So here's the thing. If you want to find the things that divide us and separate us and all of our differences and how horrific people can be, of course, they are there. But guess what? If you also want to find the most incredibly inspiring, you know, acts of courage and bravery and beauty and connection, they too are there. It is really what you want to see. And so 
I mean, that's what kept me going back. I wanted to understand how, where does that beauty come from? Where does that bravery, where does that love, where does that come from? Because I found it everywhere, every single place. And that, I just wanted to understand it. And I have to tell you, after doing this now for 20 years, that's what I choose to see. It is all around us, and that is what will carry us through and help us get to our greatest selves. Is there a photo that comes to mind of that time that you can sort of recall or an image in your mind? Hands feature a lot in many of my images, and I think it's like that expression of connection, of touch. One image was in Kashmir of a woman who was surrounded by all of her family. Her daughter had been killed in the conflict and they invited me in. They wanted me there and I was crying with them. And there was this moment when they, all the women were touching her face all around. She was circled with love in the most this moment of despair. And honestly, one day I wish I could go back and meet her um, and talk to her about it. But I took a break for my own health because I knew that I wouldn't survive if I kept going. I feel bad saying that because the people living, I could leave. I had the privilege of leaving, but it definitely had a profound impact on who I am. And it was so much suffering, friends and people I loved and living in, in these conflict zones for 10 years and got very close to people. It wasn't like impersonal. I didn't parachute in and out. It was something very close to me. And in that moment of silence, I began to look at the natural world and realized in that moment that it was this huge wake-up call. It was like, wait a minute, every single conflict I had been covering, every single one of them was absolutely connected to nature, to the resources like water, food, the clothes we wear, everything is connected to nature. And I was like, God, how could I miss this? How could I miss this huge connection? And that what we're doing to our planet right now is impacting all of this. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. I think coming from your conflict journalism background and then taking that break and then starting to photograph animals, I think it is another underserved realm of photography these days where we admire the animals so much. We find them so beautiful and captivating, but so often the human stories are lost, as you know, and you're doing an amazing job of showing the connectivity in humans and animals intersecting and benefiting. And I think your photos are doing a great job of that. So can you take me back to the first time you went to Northern Kenya? Exactly 10 years ago, I needed to take a break from the conflict. And at that moment, I heard about this story to move four of the last Northern white rhinos from that zoo in the Czech Republic, to Kenya in this last ditch effort to save the entire species. Because at the time there were only eight of them alive, 
all in zoos, right? And so I saw these ancient creatures and I looked at them and it's like, you see, you see how prehistoric, they're amazing. I literally looked at them and I was like, I think I've just met a unicorn. I mean, they were the most amazing creatures, right? And and then it broke my heart because I just kind of flashed forward in my mind. I was like, wait a minute, there are eight of these alive? That is crazy. We are witnessing extinction on our watch. And I started to want to dig into the story. I was like, what is going on? What do you mean there's only eight of them left? And today there's only two of them left. And I just started digging. I was like, well, what do we do? What's the answer? And I started researching and it was like, well, they're being poached. And every story I could find 10 years ago, it was like, we've got to militarize. We've got to kill the poachers. We've got to, this is a war. And I was like, God, well, what do the indigenous people think? I started reading and talking to people and I did a Kickstarter to raise money so I could go and make my first trip there. And I wanted to do storytelling because I found these amazing communities that went from really fearing elephants and wildlife because living with wildlife is scary, actually. Mm -hmm. When you're living in your boma, which is your, you know, little thatched roof hut and you're living amongst these wild creatures and they can kill you. And so they went from fearing them to becoming their greatest protectors. And I started finding incredible stories, incredible stories of people understanding that protecting wildlife was actually protecting themselves. And the stories go on and on, like a mama telling me that I can finally take my shoes off at night. She used to have to sleep with her shoes on, not knowing what was coming in the night. Were poachers going to come? Would she have to run into the darkness? She'd sleep with her shoes on. And by protecting wildlife and making the environment safe, and she was actually protecting her family too. And stories like that over and over again. Briteti Elephant Sanctuary. Rimland is one of the keepers. And he was saying, you know, we're not just saving the wildlife and the elephants. They're actually saving us. Mm -hmm. And it was this kind of, this idea that, you know, you don't frame people out of the story. I feel like traditionally we've done that so long in these blue chip films it's like let's go to the safaris of africa and see all the herds of elephants and, and meanwhile people are living on the same lands with them so i feel like by framing and making people a part of the story maybe we can think about how we move forward where people and wildlife coexist and that they benefit from each other and look i it's imperfect it's flawed there's no easy way forward but i feel like some of these stories in northern kenya can become the blueprint for other places where communities benefit and we recognize that, you know, as foreigners, we can travel in a way that we support them. That's one little tip I want to say to anybody who's stuck through and listened this far, but, you know, our tourism dollars make an impact. It's up to you to do your research and figure out how you can have a positive impact. And I will say, I also, I've teamed up with, um, there's an organization, a nonprofit called TreadRight, and they have come up with a whole brochure about how to travel sustainably. I'm their wildlife ambassador. So basically it's about 
how do you travel where you're being respectful and not harming wildlife? And taking that responsibility, like you mentioned, as, as okay. travelers and consumers. Yeah, I'd love to hear about your first impressions of the people in Kenya. I have to say, people are wonderful everywhere. I mean, my, some of my best friends are there right now, Kenyans, I love them. But I mean, I have to say, we're a mirror, you know, we, we get back what we give. And I feel like with going with an open heart, you're going to find magical experiences. So yeah, I'm really closely connected to all of them. It's funny, I don't, it's so hard to remember what my first experience there was because I just am so, I mean, I will say as a traveler, that's what I, I like to go back and back and back to the same places because the first time you're a stranger, the next time you're like an acquaintance sort of, the third time you go and people invite you into their home and like by the fourth time you are old friends. And I love that. I love building, you know, it's funny. I'm planting a garden for the first time in two decades and I'm like, Oh, this is the same thing I've been doing in a different way. I've been building roots and relationships to all these places I love. And now I'm building garden. <laughs> so they're all one in the same. Oh, I love that. Um, you have this photo of, of men touching this baby rhino, which they're seeing for the first time. And I think it's another thing that people on the outside looking in might assume is everyday occurrence for them, which it is in some cases, but also maybe they don't get to see the wildlife. They don't. It's mostly the keepers who've developed these deep bonds with the animals. So this black orphan, black rhino, also a tragic moment. And he was surrounded by all these Samburu young men with all their beaded jewelry and they're touching this baby rhino and comforting the rhino. And, and they were so excited to be able to meet a rhino for the first time in their lives because believe it or not, they'd never seen a rhino. They'd been poached to local extinction. So they only heard stories about rhino, despite it being the most perfect habitat for rhinos, but there were none there. Where did you take that photo of the, the men with the baby rhino? That was at Lewa Wildlife Conservancy in Northern Kenya. And I take these pictures with the understanding that, that these are communities that they live with these animals and then return them to the wild. And there's another really favorite photo of mine of a keeper named Lakupanai, who is just this most incredible human being. The giraffe that he sent back to the wild literally come back to check up on him. And I have this picture where there's this embrace where the giraffe is like, kissing Lakupanai, like nuzzling him. And he's leaning in on Lakupanai. And that was a real moment where I think it was Foopy. This giraffe had been sent to the wild and comes back in to check in on, on Lakupanai. And then they go back out and they, they're now having babies. And, and the amazing thing which has happened is the wild herd 
actually they call it a tower of giraffe, but the wild tower of giraffe, they used to run away when humans would even drive near them. Now, because the, the orphaned ones have integrated with the others, they're all becoming more comfortable so that, you know, there is this kind of peaceful coexistence there. And that place is called Namanyak Wildlife Conservancy. And you can go and stay at this place called Sarara Camp. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the most extraordinary place because the communities, wild elephants that have been injured come run in there for safety. They know that they're going to be safe in this place. And that is unbelievable to see that all these wild animals know where they're welcome. And there's just like this communication that I cannot explain to you. I've never, I've never seen it before. Mm. And it's really wonderful to witness. I'm doing a fundraiser now for Old Pejita, where the last Northern White Rhinos are. And when travel is safe again, people can buy a ticket for $10 and then win a safari with them and a get two people and a private workshop with me, photography workshop. Yeah, I'm deeply connected to the people, the animals. Most of these places survive on tourism dollars and they're struggling because tourism has completely gone away. There's no income coming in right now. So we have to figure out ways that we can all love them and support them from afar. And every little bit matters. And I think this is a moment we're going to see how truly connected we can all be because the poachers are taking advantage of this moment. Tourism pays for the security and the protection of these wild creatures and for the communities who support them. So we have to figure out new ways forward. During these challenging times, it is, it's emboldened the poachers to a point where now we're seeing rangers harmed and these people are, are taking their lives and protecting yeah. No, themselves. I mean, I've seen all kind of sides. It's tough. In the West, don't realize what it's like. We've killed most of the wildlife and big predators in our backyard. I, I live in Montana and I love it because I love going out and knowing that there's a bear that could kill me. And it makes me feel human, to be honest. And I think that we've most of the times, you know, wiped stuff out. So who are we to go and preach, honestly, to Africans and people that still have wild predators in their backyard? I think we need to put a price on those wild spaces so that they are valuable to us. I mean, I love the idea of carbon credits and giving people a reason to protect the forest that bring the water. I mean, it's all like this cool web that we have to think about all the pieces. But if we can put a value on these places, that's that's secret. And when you start digging into any story and getting to know all the pieces of it and all the people involved, you realize like there's no, people are just doing what they need to do to survive. You mentioned these places that people should visit. I think you had some great recommendations. Is there a time of the year that's better to visit Kenya? Is there a meal that they absolutely must have that maybe is indigenous or maybe calls uh, great memories from your own experiences there? Oh my gosh, go anytime. I like going when, you know, I like going when it's like the down season because when things are quieter and there's less people, it's the most amazing. Maybe you have to 
get a little wetter. I mean, right now they just sent me a video just now from Kenya. I mean, massive flooding and oh, it's incredible. So I, I, my recommendation is go in the off season. Favorite food. Well, it's funny because I've become recently, I've been trying to eat less meat, but you know, when you go to Kenya, you're with the Samburu, they want you to eat that meat with them. (laughs) It's like this expression of love. So I wrap this thing up with two questions. If I hand you a plane ticket right now and you can go anywhere and do anything, where would you go and what would you do? Well, I mean, obviously, like my heart is in Kenya and I think about them all the time. And that is where I would go because I just want to keep watching their beautiful story unfold. Yeah, you travel quite a bit in a normal year, right? How often are you home even? I was home for the past two years. I've not had more than three weeks at home and it was insane. And so I, I'm not going crazy at all with this being home. I, I'm happy. (laughs) I love that. Um, And the last question is if I say the perfect sunset, what place comes to your mind? I'm super excited to explore Montana and my backyard. I love it here. And I have a view of a little mountain and there's often elk and deer out there. So that's my happy place. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels.